Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. The Venice Film Festival has begun with world premieres including Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, Pablo Larraín's Spencer, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, and Denis Villeneuve's small, intimate film, Dune. I'll be talking about as many of them as I can here on the podcast, but to start off, I thought I would talk with Paul Schrader, whose new movie, The Card Counter, has its world premiere in Venice before its U.S. release on September 10th. Oscar Isaac plays a quiet gambler haunted by his time as a military interrogator at Abu Ghraib. He gets taken on by a gambling recruiter played by Tiffany Haddish, and befriends a strange young man played by Ty Sheridan, who has some scary ideas. I talked with Schrader a little bit about Venice, where he set his 1990 The Comfort of Strangers, and about finishing the card counter in a pandemic. He also spoke about Tiffany Haddish's vital importance in the movie, directing Oscar Isaac, gambling, and, of course, the last movies he saw. This movie is premiering, having its world premiere in Venice. And I know the last time you were in Venice was probably for First Reformed. What was the first time you were in Venice? You mean for the festival? For the festival, yeah. I think Affliction. Uh, I know I started out, I had five films at Cannes. And then Kelly uh, Fremieux replaced Josie Cobb. And they never invited me. Hmm. So then I started going to Berlin and Venice. So when this year came along, you know, I just felt, well, why even bother with that rejection of Khan? Uh, go straight to Venice. Sure, yeah. Also, Venice is, um, you know, I have been working hard on heightening this profile, and it certainly has. And I also feel like Venice has a bit of an imaginative place for you um, to a certain extent. Well, you know, I made a film that was set there. Yeah. And uh, so um, I like that film. I like that year. And so it uh, all comes back to me uh, when I go. I've, I've actually been there quite often, mm-hmm. um, not just for the film festival, for other reasons. Uh, in fact, I was just looking at a photo of myself. I was up in Switzerland and with some people, and they had tickets to see Peter Gabriel, who was performing on a raft in the water. And we had these were wealthy people, and they had a boat. And we went out and saw him. And I, there's a, I, I saw a photo of myself returning back to Venice at 5 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good Venice uh, expedition yeah. there. <laughs> well, I think, I feel like a card counter is already a success story uh, in the sense that, you know, you kind of were able to complete it uh, against the odds of, of the pandemic, which is, you know, a, a sort of big accomplishment already. What, what was the kind of production process like? You had finished shooting the pandemic. No, no, well, we were about uh, three-fourths of the way through. Okay. And uh, we were doing a big crowd scene, about 500 people. And I said to the AD, somebody in this room has it. I just know they do. Because Macau had already closed. And Macau is the biggest gambling city in the world. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was just a matter of time before Vegas would close and we were in our in the casinos on the Gulf Coast. So you knew it was coming. And, um, and sure enough, somebody in that room did have it. And then when we closed out, when everything closed out. What was interesting, though, is usually when you make a film, a, low, a lower budget independent film, you get a certain number of days to shoot, and that is it. Mm -hmm. there, there are no reshoots. There are no rewrites. Yeah. And uh, in this particular case, I had five or six character scenes yet to shoot. And uh, I didn't know when I would shoot them. Uh, so we had a hiatus. Okay. And so I could cut the film together and put placeholders in there, which is just still photographs of the actors with them reading their lines off camera. And so you, you could edit the whole film together with scenes yet to be shot. And you could get feedback. And because you you know you're going to go back. And so you would be able to say to show to Marty and say, what am I missing? I've got these scenes to shoot yet. I can rewrite them all. Is there something that I'm missing? So that turned out to be in an odd way, a luxury. Mm. Because um, I was able to examine the film as if I were in post-production. But in fact, I wasn't. Right. A forced critical distance in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, you always kick yourself after a film because you say, I, I, now I know how to do that scene. Right. Now I know how, to, how that scene should have been written. Mm -hmm. But it's too late. Yeah. It is what it is. And so that when you have this hiatus, you can really think about that, you know. Given what I've already done, is this the right scene that I've written? Did you change anything in, in the writing? Yeah, or? I did. I, 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 well, it wasn't anything of consequence. There weren't any new scenes. Mm -hmm. But it was a, um, I tuned up the t thing with Tiffany and Oscar. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was missing something. And, uh, and I added line here, a line there, a line here, and, um, brought that into focus a little more. Yeah. I had this scene where they're at the bar and um, she is sort of inviting him. Mm -hmm. And he said to her, I like this thing we have. I like this friendship. And you can see the hurt on her face. And that was happening. Uh, which is that um, I thought, you know, you should see her trying to make an effort and getting hurt. That would make the ending work better. So I added that exchange in there. Uh, I essentially rewrote that whole scene. And it was, it was better because I had the opportunity. Yeah. No, that's a scene I remember really vividly because when you cut to her reaction shot, you know, she can really see, you know, and, and it's funny because I can't, I can't entirely tell whether 
he's like setting a boundary or if he's just like not really getting it, like he's just kind of shut down in a way. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you know, Oscar Isaac's character and directing him because it seems like he really, really turned the burner down really low on, on, his, on him in a way. Well, I mean, but that's the kind of characters I write in these things, mm -hmm. you know, same thing with Ethan. I, I remember we were at an award ceremony. I was sitting next to Richard Gere. Ethan was getting an award and Richard said to me, how could you get him to do so little? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you know, an actor has to sort of trust you. Uh, in fact, they are earning their keep if they're not quote unquote acting. So, you know, I'm fond of, uh, because these pieces I write about these kind of men, they're in every single scene. And so at some point I'll tell the actor, you know, you're like a rocky cliff and a rough sea and the wind. The waves batter up against you. And those waves are called day players, plot devices. Just let them hit you. They're going to go away. The cliff remains. Mm -hmm. And uh, just think of yourself in that way. And uh, don't, don't, don't fight them. If they want to steal the thing from you, let them steal it. So, you know, that's how that kind of strategy works. But with Oscar, you know, I, uh, I had thought about Oscar when I was doing First Reformed, and Oscar's about 10 years younger than Ethan, and I thought the character should be a little older. And uh, Ethan was wonderful, but then I had Oscar in my head and I knew him, which is also part of this process when you put together these tight budget films, you have to kind of know people because- You gotta have a bond. Well, no, I mean, you'll never get to them. Okay. I mean, you send it to Brad Pitt's people and right. three months later you hear that, you know, it's not for him. You don't even know if he read it. Whereas with both Ethan and Oscar, I said, look, um, I've written something I want you to do but I'm not gonna send it to you unless you are one available and two prepared to give me an answer in less than a week. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and they both said, okay, send it. And they both said, you know, they would do it. And, uh, you know, that's just something that, you know, I've earned just because I've made so many films. Oscar Isaac, I mean, I read a reference somewhere that you actually screen tested him for an earlier project, like 10 yeah, years ago. Yeah, this was or maybe 15 years ago, 15. a revenge film called Jesuit, mm -hmm. which actually got made by other hands and never released. Uh, it was a revenge film. It was going to be in Mexico and... Uh, it was by Maya, it was going to be made by Maya. Mm -hmm. And then Maya went under. Oh, okay. Subsequently came back again and got made, but uh, it never worked. And uh, yeah. But I had uh, tested Oscar and that would have been his first leading role. Oh, wow. So, okay. so he always uh, remembered that, you uh -huh. know. How did you know him at that stage? What did you know him from? I'm trying to remember. That's. Yes. No, no, I, I didn't know. I, mean, I was just an LA casting. Before Zoom, you would actually meet people in person. Mm 
-hmm. And uh, they come in and you say, you know, let's test so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Yeah, it's a pity now. I mean, uh, casting, like so many other things, is becoming virtual. But I, uh, I like the Oscars. He had a he had a look which was reminiscent of one of Raymond Navarro. Raymond Navarro. Raymond Navarro. Yeah, he and Valentino were the great. Yeah, heartthrob. <laughs> uh, yeah, of, of the silent cinema. Yeah. He looked quite a bit like Oscar. And then also Mastrioni. Mm -hmm. And I like that kind of that charisma of those associations. And then, of course, he wears Steve McQueen's clothes from Cincinnati Kid. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, let let I me mean, let's let's talk a bit about the story. Uh, it really was remarkable to me how it's a story about you know a gambler, someone who's kind of withdrawn from a lot of life, but it, he's not really romanticized. It seems like you're making him something very different than the way people were depicted in the '70s. Maybe do you know what I mean? It seems like even more hopeless, the soul is really kind of sapped. Uh, right from the beginning, right from Taxi Driver on, you're always looking for these men, and they, you, they always are men, with these problems, and then you find a metaphor for them. So the taxi driver, it's young male loneliness, so the metaphor is the taxi cab, and people don't think or didn't think back then of taxi cab as an existential metaphor. He was a garrulous, friendly guy. But I realized that the metaphor is truly existential. It's, it's a man locked in a box. And um, that's what Kiarostami would use later, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so now I'm thinking about watching poker on TV and Hey, what a what an odd occupation! What makes somebody do that? Um, now, this is not the glamorized world of WSOP. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about people who sit there hour after hour and run numbers, like people who play the slots. You know, they make these commercials for casinos where everyone's laughing. I don't, right. I don't remember the last time I was in a casino and saw people laughing. It, it it's kind like a of, factory. It's like a factory. It's, yeah, it's a kind of zombie purgatory where you just roll the numbers. In slot machines, you don't even have to pull the, the arm anymore. And you're waiting. You just sit there and wait in purgatory. And in poker, you're waiting for something that happens maybe every four or five hours where two players have a what they believe is a winning hand. And then boom, all those hours of waiting become something. Because you both go all in. And then I started thinking about, you know, the kind of person who would be attracted to that kind of half-life. And, uh, and what might have put him there. And what he might have done. And then one of the things I was thinking about at the time was our current social situation where no one is responsible for anything. I didn't use a bad word, I bespoke. I didn't touch her inappropriately, I made a mistake, you know. 
uh, I didn't cheat all those people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody has an excuse. And I came from a culture where it's just the opposite. You came into this world soaked in guilt and you lived your life that way. You were responsible for everything. Even the stuff you didn't do, you were responsible for. <laughs> so I wanted to take someone who felt that kind of weight and uh, who has been punished. He's been punished by the government and he's been set free. But he, he doesn't feel it's enough because he's still punishing himself. And I thought that was an interesting problem. And that was an interesting metaphor for the problem. Because I could take something that people thought they knew, poker, taxi driver, drug dealer, gigolo, and then put it in a context that was different. And so you know, that's how it, it, it started out. So, and then it's, it's kind of a fun in a way using a genre, but having no, you know, this is a gambling film genre, supposedly. Mm -hmm. But I, I have no concern for gambling. It doesn't really like gambling, you know? No. Uh, it doesn't really care who wins, you know? Yeah. As opposed to, there was a film called 21, which was about blackjack about these kids who figured out how to count cards. Oh, okay, I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that would, that's a little, it's almost like a caper or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they're kind of, yeah, fast, yeah. No, this one, I mean, he, Oscar Isaac's character is so haunted by the war and it really unsettled me the way you filmed those flashbacks. Could you talk a bit about how you shot that? Is that a fisheye lens? It seems like there's a lot going on there. It's an ultra kind of fisheye. The only person that Lens doesn't see is the operator. Perhaps <laughs> oh, wow. And you know, people had done Abu Ghraib. Catherine Bigelow had done it very well. And there was another couple other films. And I didn't have the, the budget or the inclination to return to that territory. And so I wanted to be to be more dreamlike. And also to kick the film up to the next level because you know it's sort of it's repetitious in a way, and also boom, yeah, hard cut, yeah, and and it's not even um, the set isn't even how it's sort of Abu Ghraib ish, but it's not like Abu Ghraib was, you know, it's the set in his mind, it's a set of uh, a maze, it's a maze. Yeah. Well, the real Abu Ghraib was not a maze, yeah. uh, but that's how appears to him and, and his memory dream. And, and of course, the beauty of that particular lens is this only really works if you don't splice. And so then I was forced to do these two scenes in one shot, mm. which budgetarily was a godsend. Right. Because I could have spent three days in there. Instead, I only spent one. It feels even creepier because you're just like, in, you can't get out of it, you know? Yeah. It's a really strong scene. I, I gotta ask one other question, uh, also just related to the kind of weird world he's created himself. What's the deal with the rapping in his hotel room? It's so uh, haunting, because it you know makes me think of something like Mandalay or something where the house is shut down, you know? He, he does that to everyone. Well, the, um, you know, obviously we were faced with a very physically ugly world 
Casinos are ugly. Abu Ghraib is ugly. Prisons are ugly. And there's a man who lives in a world of visual pollution. And so you're thinking about ways he can create a private space for himself that is his own. And uh, then I remembered years ago when I was making Cat People in New Orleans, Nando Scarpiati, the production designer, who was Italian esthete to the nth degree, I went up to his hotel room to discuss something with him. And I walked in and he had wrapped up his furniture in sheets. And I said, Nando, you know, why do you do that? He looked at me and he said, I have to live here. <laughs> Meaning, how, how do you expect me to live in all this hotel ugliness? <laughs> expect me to look at that every day yeah. when I wake up. <laughs> and uh, I always thought that was an interesting quirk. Yeah. And so I, I put it in there and Oscar said, you know, why does he do it? And I said, I, I don't know. I, mean, I know that he does. And, uh, and if I tried to explain to the audience, why it wouldn't have any, it wouldn't have the power mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no it's 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 very uh, pregnant with meaning when you see it you know <laughs> so it's it's really good um i realized i didn't really ask you about uh casting tiffany haddish could you tell me like what where did you first see her where you thought you kind of filed her away at, at that point you you're looking for in this case a black actress because she was written black and uh you know, you're trying to think whether it's somebody classy like Carrie Washington, somebody earthy. And uh, and I learned a lesson from Scorsese on Taxi Driver, because I had a role in that film that was very bland, very beige. And he cast Albert Brooks. And I said, why did you cast Albert? He said, well, there was nothing there in the role. I figured Albert would make something of it. <laughs> and uh, I learned that lesson. And, uh, employed it from time to time, casting comedians as dramatic actors. Yeah. Cast Cedric the Entertainer in First of Form. And I said to Cedric, no, I didn't cast you to be funny. He said, I thought if you had, I wouldn't take the job. So I, I always have a soft spot for taking comedians and then having them play straight roles because they bring another dimension to it. And also you can get them to financially sacrifice because they want to enlarge the perception of them as uh, someone who doesn't just do stand-up. So, um, you know, we just started talking about uh, Black actresses in the 30s and the name came up and, uh, you know, I did my research and, uh, and of course, the fact that she has such a following was advantageous to the financing. You know, I mean, to be with her in the casino, everybody knows who she is, you know. Yeah, she she's great. So you saw Girls Trip, I guess, for one thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, saw her specials and all that. Special, yeah. So I, I want to ask, you know, my usual question for the podcast. You know, the name of the podcast is The Last Thing I Saw. And, you know, I know you are constantly watch, watching movies and- um, Yeah, I, yeah, uh, I mean, I saw half of Annette last night. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Adam Driver. I'm not a big, certainly 
not a big fan of most recently or Carax, not a big fan of Sparks. So I thought I'd only watch a little <laughs> bit of it. Just a little. And I, about halfway through, uh, it was getting late. I went to bed, but I found myself oddly sort of captured by it in a way that I didn't expect to be. Uh, I can't say I liked it. I'll, I'll watch the rest of it tonight. Yeah. I, I saw a film recently. Have you seen this film, Swan Song, with Udo Krier? Oh, I I heard about it. Yeah, he he's yeah. he's he's the lead for a change in this one. He's not yeah. the character. Right? And, and, and it really uh, it really hangs in my memory. Uh, mm -hmm. Little did I know that Sandusky, Ohio, was ground central of American male homosexuality. And uh, and then I, I saw the, this Hungarian film, Preparations for Living Together for an Unknown Period of Time, yes. which is very very good film. Yeah. And then occasionally I'm back. I, was, I started watching the Misfits. I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize how bad it really was. <laughs> Arthur, I'm writing as bad as I can, Miller. <laughs> well, he was he was biased a bit, maybe at that moment. I mean. Yeah. And then, then I saw White Lotus, which is also a confounding film because there's something you like about it, and there's also something that you don't like about it, and. Uh, I mean, I really didn't like any of those people. I finally stopped watching it. But then I had to go to Wikipedia to find out how it turned out. Right. Um, did you have any any like big discovery? I think I saw something you you like rewatched Magnolia or something at some point or. Well, Magnolia certainly uh, is on my list to rewatch, but that wasn't me. Okay. Oh, okay. uh, I've seen Magnolia twice, but I think I'd like to see it again. Uh, as opposed to, say, The Master, which I have no desire to see again. Yeah, I, I try to watch, you know, one old film a week. I just uh, turned Molly Haskell on to L'Argent by Lerbier, not the Bracehorn, in the 1931. Yeah, which was brilliant. And also has one of the first making of documentaries that's 40 minutes long. Uh -huh. He... Uh, gave access to this kid who, of course, it was before sound, so the kid had access to everything, who could walk around wow. while they were shooting. And uh, you really see, uh, I think, and I've never seen anything like this, it's called Autour of Argent. And there's a two-minute clip of it on YouTube, and then the whole thing is available on something called Daily Motion or something. But, um, it's really absorbing because you can see, well, actually you can see how they made movies, which is they were all in three-piece suits. He's talking through the takes to the actors, getting right real close to them, talking to them while they're doing the reaction shots. And, and there's musicians around playing music. <laughs> and, and everything is so expensive. And there was huge sets and everything. It's a, a real treat to see. The full force of the industry at work at the moment. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I watched something recently that I was trying to watch other gambling movies. Have you seen this one with Robert Mitchum? It's a John Farrow picture. He's opposite Jane Russell. It's on the Criterion channel. But I started wondering if Robert Mitchum would have ever been a, an actor if, if you were in another age, whether you'd wanted him in a movie. <laughs> no, I, I Mitchum, uh, I like, but he's... I, I, I need these kind of receptive people that you can pour stuff into. So like 
my idea of a priest is Ethan Hawke, mm. not Brendan Gleeson. Okay. So, you know, Calgary, you know, I like people who have, wear the footprints of their suffering. Mm. So you don't have to put it in. No, just like on Taxi Driver, when I first saw the film, and there was a lot of narration about loneliness in the film. And I said to Marty, you know, we don't need all that. Every time you see that fucking cab, you get it. You know, I, and uh, the same thing with certain faces. Uh, you get it, you know. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I thought Mitchum was terrific, and Eddie Coyle, obviously, out of the past, all that. Yeah. But um, I don't think he would be receptive to this type of film, although you never know. We were shooting in Kyoto on Yakuza. I wasn't there, my brother was there. And they were doing a scene that required him to be emotional. And he, he cut off his finger. And, and he, you know, Pollock wasn't happy. And he finally says to Pollock, you want me to really do it? And Sidney says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walked back and he said, he said out of the corner of his mouth to my brother, don't ever give them what they want till you know they really want it. Otherwise, it scares them. Right. <laughs> it's funny. I, I was I went back to read your uh, writings about the Yakuza films, and you had the thing about beauty and humanity, and I started yeah. thinking thinking about that in terms of card counter a little bit. All right, so we'll wrap it up there. Um, Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk about too, the card counter, and congrats again on on the Venice premiere. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.